because this shit is all made up anyway. The whole basis on which I have lived my life from childhood to 50 years is based on all sorts of scraps of information that I sticky taped together to create this winning strategy. Like this is how I'm supposed to navigate through life. It's all made up. So I now in my 50 plus years of wisdom realize like, hmm, what if I make up an alternative reality that serves my purposes much better than that outdated yellow curly edge sticky tape shit that I put together five decades ago? What if I get to create myself into being every day? You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. There's a sentence in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland that has often been a guiding light for me. The secret, Alice, is to surround yourself with people that make your heart smile. It's then and only then you'll find Wonderland. In my experiences in and out of Wonderland, I've met up with mad hatters, queens, growth and change seekers, fast hoppers, and on occasion, I've had the honor of being with the people that make my heart smile. My guest is Dr. Mandy Leto, and Dr. Mandy makes my heart smile. Listen in as we talk about what it means to be enough, the performative ways of being the good girl and the good boy, and how learning breakdown by breakdown to let go of external validation opens us up to who we really are today in the Trauma Hiders Club. Mandy, I am so glad you're here. You are, to me, a ray of sunny, vibrant, radiance combined with incredible brilliance and a very sharp wit. So it's always fun to speak with you. Well, you're a mirror. I was going to say, this is why we like spending time together, right? <laughs> we have, we laugh at inappropriate things. We're both smart as fuck. And, you know, we're going to set the world right today in this conversation. That's so right. bring it on. Okay. Let's do the thing. <laughs> awesome. So Offline, Mandy and I were talking about two phrases. Yes, I think they're phrases, terms, terms, good girl, the good girl and enoughness. Mm -hmm. 
And my question to Mandy is, can the good girl live apart from enoughness or are they always intertwined? I've never thought about them unintertwined. For me, they've definitely been part of the same journey. And I think rather than trying to speak in universals, in this case, I will speak about what my experience is and, you know, listeners can yay or nay or somewhere in between. But for me, growing up as the good girl, adhering to rules, finding out what gave me pats on the head, where I could truffle out love, like where I could be the best at something. I found the system. I cracked the system at a young age to figure out what the good girl behaviors were that got me good enoughness or protected me from criticism. And the good girl was a kind of code of behavior that my particular formula for that might've been different than anybody else listening. But what that looked like for me was get top marks at school, don't make waves, don't talk back, be appropriate, be exceedingly appropriate. Don't make a scene, be agreeable, be pretty, be not passive, like bland necessarily, but this circles back to the don't make waves. And this became at least the the core of a formula that if I did those things, then I could gain praise, not only at home, but later on with school and in university and with members of the opposite sex, with, with colleagues, like it seemed like a great winning strategy. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of flaws in this system that will, I'm sure, come up in this conversation, but it was the way that I knew how to validate myself via other people, because I didn't, obviously, when you participate in this system, you don't develop your own self-trust. You don't develop your own center of gravity. You don't develop that inner voice in your head that tells you like, mm, you might want to not date that guy because he seems like a bit of jerk or you know, that, that inner compass, when you constantly learn to push that down and participate in what everybody else, and I'm air quoting here, thinks you should be doing, you're, you're participating in someone else's agenda, how you fit in, you're morphing yourself, contorting yourself to fit in with somebody else's agenda. That was my way of getting enoughness because I couldn't self-administer it. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't grow up that way. So for me, they've, they've really gone together like gin and tonic or salt and pepper or whatever. They've always been tight, tight, tight. Got it. So the definition of enoughness, what I'm hearing is external, right? It's the information coming to you is from the outside. You're filtering it in and saying, check, I'm enough. This is what makes it so insidious. Yeah. And now it's kind of like one of those pixelated images that when you screw your eyes in a certain way, you can see it and it's been there hiding in plain sight all along. Now I can't unsee it. Mm. And I realize how, you know, like, what was I thinking all those years? Uh, enough according to who? 
depending on who, whoever I was contorting myself for. And that's why this whole, that's what makes it so insidious is because there's not a set rule list. If I just do these things right on the regular, then I shall be bestowed with enoughness for all time. And I shall be free. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that your definition of enoughness has evolved as you have taken a look within and made decisions come from a place of choice about how you're going to live your life? I think it's a constant process of unvelcroing myself from mm. things that happen like so young. This is dyed in the wool, right? It, yes. And it's not just in family systems, in our school systems. You know, you should be seen and not heard. Don't speak up. The way th things used to roll like 400 years ago when we were in primary school, right? I mean, it was right. a very different world. <laughs> It's, it's in the whole kind of patriarchy capitalist system that, you know, we're supposed to feel bad about our weight and we're supposed to feel bad about our aging and all of these things that want to keep women, especially in a box that we're supposed to be a certain way. And now I can't unsee that. Mm. And am I still part of that system? Hell yes. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to pretend I have found the solution to it, but it's a daily practice of yeah. like, do I really need to spend $499 on that face cream that promises to, you know, make me young and eternally perky? And like, does that even matter? So it just, I'm in a place of questioning. Mm. That's where I'm at in, the, in enoughness. I'm, I'm pushing back on a lot of the shoulds. Okay. I hear that. I hear that. I'm drawing parallels to my experience, the enoughness. I don't know. I clearly didn't have the word, right? That wasn't my thing. My thing was I'm going to show up heroic and okay and strong and bold. You're never going to see the shit show within, right? So my, it's interesting. I don't know that I had an ex I'm going to like psych myself into and out of this conversation. So here I go. <laughs> I don't know that I had an external message that was telling me yes, no, to validate my okayness. It's interesting. I think that for me, as long as nobody got close enough to see the inferno within, then I was okay. So actually, here I am psyching myself in and out of the conversation because clearly the information that I was getting from other people, they weren't coming close. They couldn't see the inferno. Yeah. So I guess that is external. I think the thing about enoughness is we're measuring ourselves to some moving metric and it's clearly not our own. And therefore in the pursuit of enoughness, it's a performative art because we're, hey, human, and we can't maintain the level of whatever is required of us, thinness, beauty, cleverness, wit, math scores, you know, SAT scores, whatever it is that we're supposed to be working on or achieving, bonuses, designer cars, you know, you name it, whenever we can't achieve that, then for me anyway, it became like, okay, now I need to, because I can't be that, 
I clearly now have to become an expert at performing that, that I can be that Yeah. and pushing all the squinchy human, oh, like all these feelings of inadequacy and lack of worth rather than actually saying, you know, like, hmm, why am I actually pressuring myself to perform to this ridiculous standard? Mm. But, you know, as a kid or as a young woman, I wasn't having those kind of self-awareness conversations with myself. It was more about this is how I've been trained and this is how I've trained myself to fit in, not to belong, but to fit in and perform who I think I'm supposed to be to be acceptable. So there's definitely for me, there's that performative part of it when it was unsustainable. And I'm starting to question that and peel that away like old wallpaper as well. Yes. Yeah. So how did you know that you weren't acceptable, that you weren't enough, that you had to change or you had to create the system? How did you, who told you? This comes back to a lot of the conversations I had with my dad growing up because he was a teacher at the primary school where I went. So there was nowhere to hide. Mm. He knew all my grades. And I remember one, one memory that really stands out is we did these Gates McGinnity tests at school. They were like, you had to fill in the bubble. It was kind of like an IQ test of sort. And my father came home and he said, there was this one girl who nobody thought of as particularly gifted, bright. She scored higher than me. And I still remember the name of that girl because my father made such a big production of how could she score higher than me? I shouldn't have known that. He leaked that as a teacher because he, of course, went to spy on where my results were. Uh, He wasn't even the teacher in my class. And I just remember thinking that I have to win at everything Mm. to not get the silent treatment, to not be seen as less than. And there are a hundred other stories like this that I could tell you. But let one story suffice for Mm -hmm. a lot of this was messaging, mainly from my dad, that I had to achieve, to win, to get gold ribbons and trophies. And therefore, I was loved and valued. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't, I was shamed or got silent treatment or was sort of brushed off and was persona non grata. So my child brain figured that out pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that's something to write, to go into the files and then use that. Yeah. I can hear how performance achievement and gold star, right. Was how we knew Mandy was enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, (laughs) you know, I'm the third child. Do you have siblings? I'm the oldest. Ah, The only girl. Ah. So I'm the third child born third, clearly, in three years, right? So my sister is three years older than me, actually 37 months. And my, there's a brother in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering if there was that, that performance achievement sort of like edict on me. And I don't, I think it was more benign neglect (laughs) than anything else, right? Because parents only have two arms. So my sister could be held, my brother could be held. And 
I could eat dirt if that's what I wanted to do, which I did apparently often want to do is eat the dirt from the plants. I always say that if I'm going to write a book or a play or a movie, it's going to be called Go Ahead, Eat Dirt. <laughs> because that's the story my mom tells about me, right? She was like so overwhelmed with having three kids in three years. And she was holding my sister or my brother and my dad was holding the other and I was eating out of the dirt in the plant. And she was like, you know what? Go ahead, eat the dirt because we got nothing. <laughs> and the hustle that you were talking about earlier, that kind of irreverence, that sort of armor that you put around yourself. This is also something that can, you know, this is also a manifestation of whatever this hustle is that we're trying to find ways to be loved. Like it's the push, push away approach. Like I don't need, if I'm not getting the love I need, I don't need it. Yeah. I'm good. So it's this way that we find as little kids and we pick up these signals and we, we create this into a strategy that's a winning strategy until it's not. Right. So I'm telling my story, but it can look all different. It can yeah. look all different ways. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So when I hear people talking about enough, right? Like I'm enough, you know, you see all sorts of quotes or Instagram kind of like lovely little things about being enough. I actually, I hadn't thought about it coming from the outside. Isn't that interesting how I'm missing that chunk um, of awareness? I hadn't thought about it coming from when people are posting things about that. I always thought of it as I am telling myself, right? I am owning my enoughness and the rest of that external stuff isn't where I'm looking, right? I'm, I'm getting it. And what I was thinking is that there's a, when I asked you about your evolution, if there was an evolution in enoughness for you, I think I think because I was looking at, right, this, this system created in childhood. And once we have, if we ever have the awareness that the external is not where we need to look, do we then get to flip or choose to flip the enoughness as it's, it's in here. I'm not going to look over there anymore. It's a really great question. And it's something that I I spend a lot of time in this question mm -hmm. and I have a lot of different answers to this question. It is nuanced. It is complex. And the way that I've found is I can't never, I can never not look externally. It feels good. And I think unless, you know, my, I think what is it like being a psychopath or sociopath that we don't care and our emotions are completely cut off. I care what people think. Mm -hmm. It depends on how much of that gauge I rely on, but it still feels, I'm not going to lie and say, I don't care if somebody leaves a crappy comment on an Instagram post or something hurtful. Of course, of course I want people to like me, mm -hmm. but the more interesting conversation has been, can I like me? Yes. And the way that I found that that happens is really getting clear on all the parts of me and mm -hmm. learning how not to spend so much time and energy 
performing over or hustling over or achieving over or buying expensive clothes to create a diversion over all of those parts that I hope no one else will notice Mm -hmm. because I can't yet be in relation to them in a healthy way. And the work that I'm in for years now is meeting the parts of myself that I have tried to like disassociate myself from, to try to orphan off, to try to like ditch at the curb. And the deep work of this is really like when I'm in that place of like, I feel if I'm talking to an important person and all of a sudden there's that part of me that feels like I need to impress, I can catch myself in the heat of the moment and think, oh, there's that part of me right now that's probably about six years old mm. that really wants this VIP person, like, please like me, please like me, please tell me I'm good enough. And if I can realize that that little part of me right now is trying its very best to keep me safe, then it drops my shoulders two inches. Mm-hmm. And it's this, there's the part of me that is afraid of who I am if I don't win. There's the part of me that's terrified that what if I'm ordinary? And then on the other hand, just like, oh, what if I'm ordinary? Right. <laughs> oh, my shoulders right. drop two inches. If I get to, if I'm allowed to be ordinary, yeah. like the pressure to be someone all the time. And when I'm meeting those parts of myself that have felt yucky or shameful, and I realize that they get to be there. They are legit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then in that acceptance, I realize that I don't need to do all that tap dancing over them to, to create diversions because they're part of me. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I make it sound really easy here. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I want to, I want to go back to that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We could yada, yada, right. Personal mm-hmm. growth and just get to the end, but that's not as fun. Is it? I, if you if you're open to it, I, I sort of want to backtrack a little bit to how no, that's not my question. The effects, what was the effect of on you of fitting in? What was what was the let's say, what are the side effects of living a life to fit in? Hmm. I didn't have the distinction in my mind between fitting in and belonging. Mm. Can you break that down for us? Fitting in felt like a reprieve from the survival and scarcity mentality that I think I put myself into by constantly being the good girl by hustling for enoughness and for worth. Like there was always something that that what I mean by scarcity mentality is it always felt like something could be taken from me that I didn't know how to manufacture. So it's Mm. kind of like your lifeline or your oxygen line being cut off. And therefore I must continue to contort myself to the point of depletion and exhaustion if necessary riding roughshod over boundaries, whatever was required to continue that oxygen line coming in. Mm. And so belonging wasn't even available to me. Fitting in just felt like a place of safety Mm -hmm. where 
um, I wasn't in the line of criticism, for example, that as long as I was at the top of whatever, you know, test we were taking or running race or skiing race or what have you, or later, as long as I was one of the top producers in my investment banking job, then that created a kind of fake sense of safety in my mm -hmm. brain. And as I started to do the work of integrating myself and realizing that I am not what I do and that I am not what I produce and that I am not what I achieve, there's like a long lag time of like, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this is something that they say to sell books, but you know, this doesn't apply to me. I, right. I am actually what I do. Uh, but once I started to peel those parts of, away, all of a sudden I saw that belonging was an option mm. and that belonging in contrast to fitting in belonging actually is a place where I can fly my freak flag a little bit because it's not about being cookie cutters of one another. Belonging is where I get to bring my unique sense of self and I can express my wants and it's safe to put up boundaries for what I don't want. Yes. And belonging is where I can bring all my squinchy humanity and my failures that never were permitted in the fitting in because that was all performative. And that belonging had totally different criteria. And I realized in hindsight that I was still performing belonging yes. <laughs> for a while. It was just like fitting in plus, plus, plus. Right. But letting go little by little of the performing allows me to really start to explore that stuff that maybe the rest of the world did in childhood and in teenagehood of like, what do I want? Mm -hmm. What feels good for me? How do I like my pizza? Right. What juices me up? What am I, what am I no longer willing to tolerate? You know, like all of these conversations are part of what I needed to be in to shift from fitting into belonging. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so glad that you said you were fitting in belonging because as you were describing and imagining a life, right, of fitting in, we can't just pop into belonging. So, you know, let's just be real clear about that. We, it's not like there is a dividing line and there's fitting in and there's belonging. There's evolution. So fitting in was very comfortable. So to hop over to belonging, we're taking our fitting in behaviors into the camp of belonging. So just making that clear, I love that you said that because the comfort actually was in fitting in where discomfort is in belonging. How fucked up and glorious at the same time, <laughs> right? <laughs> belonging has risk, as you said. Yes. And in that steeping process between those two worlds, in that waiting room, in between fitting in and belonging, is where I, I can only speak for myself, like how much is it actually acceptable? Like how, how much can I really belong? Like, can I, what's acceptable for me to start to show as my real self? Like how much of my kimono can I really open? 
And it's like a process to get your nervous system calibrated to that too. Sure. I don't know if that resonates with you, but that, that was a, and is a process for me. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I just want (laughs) to true confession here. Um, and perhaps this is, um, a traumatized child speaking. Whenever I hear open the kimono, I just have a gross image. Um, (laughs) I, it's just, (laughs) seriously, I, I go to like, I don't want to see what's in there. And it could be like that, that could be like a trauma response for me. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but whenever I hear it, I'm like, I remember the first time I heard it and I was like, no, don't, please don't (laughs) open the kimono, like shielding my, my eyes. And then I learned that that's actually about showing it all. And even that, like, I got to work through that too, to this day. And, you know, showing the kimono I've heard from, I don't even know how many years, still working on getting through that. Yeah. So um, I had a question about that. Oh, okay. When you say the work that you've been doing for years, can you tell us about that? I have done all kinds of modalities. I have worked with some of the best coaches on the planet. I have sat on mountainsides in Sedona with you. Yes. I have done primal screaming work. I have almost finished writing a book about all of this. I have done meditation and yoga and you name it. It's, I just wrote a post about this not long ago, like 42 random things that I've tried to expedite my healing from fitting into belonging. And I think what I felt at the beginning of this journey is if I just throw enough money and energy at this, I can somehow expedite the Mm -hmm. process of not feeling, you know, so many of these uncomfortable human feelings. And what I've realized is that there, it's not a way to get rid of feelings. I think the more I started to do the work, the more it allowed feelings to come up, which is like Mm. really fucking inconvenient, right? Like on a random Tuesdays, it's like all of a sudden these memories start coming up and like, well, what the heck is happening with me Mm -hmm. now? So I thought that I could achieve and good girl my way through this process. But actually like the irony is you can't use the tool that you're, you can't use the thing as a tool that you're (laughs) you're trying to get, trying to work on. Right. (laughs) Who knew? Yeah. Right. I'm right there with you. I think a lot of it has just a lot of it has just been having like a sense of humor with myself Mm -hmm. and going gently and giving myself so much compassion Mm -hmm. and being okay with being exactly where I am, trusting that I'm not too late. I'm right on time and creating an alternative reality for myself. Cause this shit is all made up anyway. The whole basis on which I have lived my life from childhood to 50 years is based on all sorts of scraps of information that I sticky taped together to create this winning strategy. Like this is how I'm supposed to navigate through life. It's all made up. So I now in my 50 plus years of wisdom realize like, Hmm, what if I make up an alternative reality that serves my purposes much better than that outdated yellow curly edge sticky tape shit that I put together five decades ago. 
what if I get to create myself into being every day? And this is what I do. I have a practice that shifts daily, but the portal every day is the same. I am the conscious creator of my experience. I repeat this to myself hundreds of times a day when I'm walking the dog or when I'm, you know, and there'll be other parts to it. You know, I am soft power. I am levity and lightness. I, you know, I, I am, it's, it's a series of I am statements that I use to create myself into the world to create an alternative narrative to live into that is creating belonging. I am belonging. I will never forget one of the most powerful things I have ever heard someone say, which is coming from your mouth. I belong in every room that I'm in. And that is a conscious choice that we can choose by how we choose to be. Mm-hmm. I am connection. I am belonging. I am love. I am lightness. I am levity. I am trusting myself in any situation. Those sorts of statements, I create myself anew every day. And sometimes the script changes depending on what I'm present to that day or what's coming in my diary. But it always starts with, I am the conscious creator of my experience. I love that. I love, I love, I love the sentence stem of I am. And then the conscious creator of my experience, there's so much richness in that, right? It's awareness, it's possibility, and it's choice. Mm -hmm. Dang girl, (laughs) right? And working with my own coach, one of the things that I'm playing with right now that feels really uncomfortable to even say out loud, but what the heck is I am an experience. Mm, Love that. Because all of a sudden, when I get to be and create myself as an experience, immediately, I'm not for everybody. Mm -hmm. I get to choose what that experience feels like for me from the outside. And if people radiate towards that, great. Happy days. If people self-select and opt out, great. Happy days. Enjoy your life. So this idea of not needing to fit in becomes a creative act because I have created my own safety. I am my own safe space. Love that. I'm just taking all of that in. And I want to acknowledge, Mandy, that having known you, I think for five years now? At least, yeah. Yeah. The, I want to say evolution, I'm going to call it growth and shift that I see in you of your owning, owning yourself as a creator, owning yourself as an experience. One, it looks magnificent on you. And two, there is so much freedom and peace in that. And I know that listeners can't see that because can't see you, but I can, and it flows through you. I mean, it's who, when I met you, I did think Mandy is perfect. Right. And, and it, I don't know that it was a way of your being. It probably was my way of seeing right? Me telling something about me to myself. And what I see now is a, just a, a openness that is really 
really gorgeous on you. Thank you. Yeah. And when we first meet people, it's our projections sure. colliding with their projections, right? And whatever hodgepodge that then creates. Right. And this idea, if we, if we challenge ourselves to be our own safety, and this journey will look different for everybody, but I think the things I keep coming back to as touchstones are, you know, just hold it lightly. I learned, I learned that phrase from my friend, JP Morgan, John Morgan. And he was, he's just like, well, what if you held it lightly? Mm -hmm. I'm like, that is such a great phrase. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket, hold it lightly. And there's hilarity in most things, right? Like this is like a major bond you and I have, we send each other inappropriate jokes and, you know, some appropriate ones as well, but laughter, levity, and, you know, creating ourselves on purpose intentionally because it's all made up anyway. And then one thing that I'm also really mindful for or mindful about right now is all of this ends. Mm. This is, this is something that we forget. And I'm not saying this in a morbid way, but I'm so, my first job was in a funeral home. I had a, a job in university where I was working in an animal morgue and like, not that it was on purpose, but you know, my PhD, I was studying death and, and rituals and suffering and all of this in war. And I thought, wow, I never connected the dots in hindsight, but what that has done for me, and those were completely random things. I didn't choose those, but is that all of this goes away. And when we're in flow, in process, we forget about it, which can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse because we forget that we all have an expiry date. Mm. And it may not be when we're 87 and you know we pass away in our sleep. It, it, we don't know when it's coming. And I think I, I, one of my I am's is like, I am mortal. I am, I'm living in a body that will go away and it will not belong to me at some stage. It just, it messes with my thinking about how important it is to perform perfection and why can't we just get to the business of being in connection? Yes. I love that. Right. We could opt for, we are mortal. So let's go to the hustle mindset. I'm only here so long, so I better fucking do it, right? That's like the hustle bro mentality. There are also women who do that, not just bros. But I love, right? One, the acceptance. Two, the surrender. And again, I'm hearing the peace in that. What a beautiful reminder. And hustle is for some people. That is, that's what jingles their bells. I've been there and I've done that. And I realized that what I seek most deeply from my own soul, from my own being is I seek to connect. I seek to make an impact. Like Mm. these are the things like I've done the deep work of knowing what I want from my time here. And I'm not going to dick around on other things that are going to take me off the path that I'm on and, you know, call it mission, call it purpose. I don't give it those kind of lofty titles. It's in the creation every day. Can I make someone's life better? Can we laugh about this? Those kind of things matter deeply to me. And that for me is where belonging comes from. I create belonging in every room I'm in. And you do. Love that. 
So beautiful. Thank you. Mandy, is there anything you want us to know about you that you haven't shared? I'm in the messy process of figuring out how to talk about this stuff. Mm. So I really appreciate that you've shared a mic with me today to start to speak this into the world. And I know maybe I've been messy here and I'm okay with that. And I'm glad that you've allowed me to speak that into the world as well, because when we speak things, you know, ideas become things, thoughts become things. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be in the mess of this with you. And I'm also practicing being in the mess of this on Instagram. And if there's, if this resonates with you, if you're listening, I would love your feedback on me being in the mess of putting words around trusting myself, around getting out of the good girl conditioning, around manufacturing my own enoughness and moving my lens away from all the places in which I measure up inadequate air quotes and moving my lens away into all the places we can walk together. So as I said, I appreciate the stage. And if, if anybody wants more of this processing the mess, then you can find me on Instagram. And we'll have all the links to everything about Mandy, <laughs> all your social stuff, your website, everything. So take a listeners, take a look at the show notes. Mandy has a beautiful Instagram and it's very active, right? You will always find something to chew on going to Mandy's Instagram. Again, we'll have a link. Um, Before we go, is there anything that is really exciting in your world that you want listeners to know about? I have started a podcast when I felt like the new iteration of me, you know, like being in the exploration of this theme, the podcast is aptly named Enough, Mm. the podcast. And I talk about all the ways in which we convince ourselves that we're not enough mm-hmm. and how we can navigate that journey of moving from seeking external validation to getting to that messy, creative, levity-filled place of you know, just owning, owning all of ourselves and therefore increasing the likelihood of belonging because we're all imperfect. I love that Ram Das quote, like we're all just walking each other home. So that's what the, that's what I'm really jazzed about at the moment. So if you loved this conversation, there's, there's more goodies over at enough, the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I was just listening to it this morning. I don't remember the author's name, a woman who is hard of hearing. Jen Pasteloff. Loved that. Yes. I loved that conversation. Uh, What I really loved was how you, in your conversation, kept inviting her to take a look at her story and the, how she presented it, which was sort of in a yada yada personal growth way, right? Like, and that's how it happened. And you, I loved that you wanted to go deeper and deeper to share the experience of not only self-awareness, but the choice within. And yeah, 
beautiful conversations. That was the one I heard today. I've heard others really, really important, beautiful conversation. So yes, take a listen. Thank it's you. It's great stuff. Yeah. Mandy, it is always great to connect with you. Beautiful across the pond. Mandy's in, what city are you in? In London, in England. Oh, you are in London, London. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. I'm in London, oh. London. Well, I live in a suburb of London called Wimbledon. Tennis country. Tennis country. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. It's always wonderful. And it's been great having you here in the Trauma Hiders Club. This conversation feels like a really good meal. You know, when you lay on the sofa and you put your track pants on because you need a waistband, you know, you don't need a firm waistband. That's exactly what this conversation feels like. A good meal. We just switch the TV on now, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> or un- or if I still have my hard pants on, I'm going to unbutton and they've already been unbuttoned. <laughs> I love that. I love you and always, always cherish our time together. So thank you so much. Love you too. Big, big hug. Thanks for having yes, me. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.